0: Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I am humbled by all of your response and everything you've written to me and... Oh, I just got another thank you note today on my desk. It's nonstop. And I never thought that when I did this, that it would be that way. But I'm glad that this is providing something for all of you that is enjoyable. It's so enjoyable for me because time stands still. And I love when that happens. And the only time it ever really happens to me is when I'm engaged with somebody who I really have an enormous amount of respect for how they are and what they do and how they've gone through their life and their career and it's really important to me it's a big part of my life and I'm glad I could be in a position to share these conversations with you thank you thank you thank you and another person I need to thank today is my guest who I am so excited about and that's Larry Miller and if you don't know Larry Miller That would be a shame because he is one of the most iconic stand-up comedians and actors from my generation. And I say that because stand-up comedy and acting, it just doesn't happen. For some reason, it's a different muscle that most stand-up comedians never seem to be able to figure out how to operate the muscle. There's examples of those comedians who we all know are brilliant and geniuses who for some reason have never been able to walk into a room and pick up a piece of paper that's written by somebody else and deliver the lines exactly the way their mental picture of it is yet when they get a chance to do their own show with their own words a lot of times they're phenomenal and normally these cold opens, I look at my guest, and I, there's something that comes to me, and something just stands out at me that was a part of my life, and that's the Nutty Professor. And I want to share with you all a story that I may have shared long ago or on another podcast, but it was a time in my life as a manager when I represented. Somebody who I consider to be a genius and somebody who I believe has changed the face of comedy and the way people perceive comedians and sketch and acting in your own projects. And that's Dave Chappelle. And I was fortunate, as you know, to represent Dave for between eight and nine years. And it was some of the greatest moments of my life. A wonderful, wonderful man and real special times. But one of the things about Dave that was difficult, and I'm sure he would agree when he was younger, he come out to Los Angeles and it's daunting. You don't want to fail. You want to do great work. And when you're doing your stand-up, for those of you out there, you're writing, creating, performing executive producing directing your own one-person show every time you go on stage and you control your variables of how you succeed or you don't succeed granted you could run into an audience that is wearing un headsets and they really don't really get what you're saying but for the most part it's up to you But when you're going to a situation where their stakes are high and it's a big movie and you got to walk into a room with a director who you know has seen every actor in your type and range and even those that aren't, and you have to go in and you have to create a choice that is psychically bound to the director of exactly what they want or better than they want. One thing for you out there in any job you're working in all over the world, just to give you insight into this crazy profession, what happens is normally a breakdown that's released of a project. And when I say a breakdown, I mean like a, a something electronically or a sheet of paper that you get from a company called Breakdown Services. Now, just to preface, if you're an actor working at some of the biggest agencies in the business, you're finding out about these roles way ahead of any breakdown because they represent the directors, the producers, and you're just going in and they're telling you what's happening. But for most comedians and, and, and actors... They get a breakdown. The breakdown says the executive producers of the project, the producers, the director. It says the role. It says the description of the role and whether it's, you know, where it is on the call sheet normally in terms of is it the lead, is it the co-lead, whatever it is, whether they're looking for household names or not. And it's daunting when you think about this whole situation because. There's nothing written, there's no director's crib notes that says, okay, the director has a vision that you should play it this way, you should walk with a limp, you should carry yourself a certain way. And what's fascinating, if you watch any film from Sexy Beast to even True Story that's out right now, you look at the actor's choices on certain things, the subtle choices, Like it's amazing what you see, like Ben Kingsley in Sexy Beast, beast the way he walks down the airport he has his arm up parallel to his body and he's got the coat on it and it's a choice of how he's walking to james franco when he has the handcuffs on him and if you notice he has two fingers out and he's holding the other two fingers with his other hand These might seem like the most minimal, ridiculous things that don't make any difference at all, but they do. Everything makes a difference, and the director is thinking, how is this person going to come in and blow me the fuck away? Because I've looked at a hundred motherfuckers, and I haven't found one person that moves me. But the guy I'm sitting across, Larry Miller, has figured out a way to go into these rooms hundreds of times... And snatched the role away from people who've gone to Juilliard or people who've been in situations where they've studied acting their whole lives and so did Dave Chappelle but Dave Chappelle was nervous because you know you got to go into these auditions and you got to give them something and he's 18 20 years old he's never been in this situation before and I remember an agent named Martin Lissak, who started at Abrams Artists, went to UTA, United Talent Agency, went to CAA, and now recently, with a big shakeup with CAA, moved to United Talent Agency back again with his partner in crime, Jason Heyman. But we represented Dave Chappelle along with other agents like Ruth Ann Secunda, who's now at the ICM, and we were trying to get him to do certain things that were important that he wanted to do. You could feel he wanted to do them. But for some reason, I would call him and say, listen, we have an audition for you with Tom Shadyak, who's a brilliant director who has now did a documentary, which is tremendous. I strongly suggest you take a look at it. And he hasn't really been doing much directing lately. But at the time, he was making about $10 million a movie. He was the biggest comedy director there was out there. And we finally were able to get an appointment for Dave Dave Chappelle for this role. And it was the last appointment that the guy was taking. He'd cast it for a long period of time and he was tired and we finally convinced him to see Dave and he said, we'll see him at seven o'clock in my office, Universal, bring him down. Now, Dave was the kind of guy, he was so affable and lovable. And back then you had paper scripts, you didn't have electronic scripts. And he was the kind of guy who you'd give him a script or something and you'd be like, did you read the script? And he's like, oh, Barry, man, I'm sorry. Could you give me another one of those? I left it at the club. For a project, you could possibly give him five scripts. And he loved the role. And the role was of like a Def Jam comic host at the club who was going to be giving shit to Eddie Murphy and doing comedy. And there were a couple of really big scenes. One when Eddie Murphy was his normal self and one was he was the larger character and Dave, it seemed like kept delaying the inevitable of trying to get this audition with Shadyak because we had tried before and we'd reschedule and canceled And Shadyak was, you know, he was like he, he would like to see Dave, but he was like he'd heard about him, but he was tired of tired of waiting. And he said, "This is it. It's the last time." So I remember I drove to where Dave Chappelle was to pick him up and drive him to this audition. And I think we picked up Martin Lysak on the way, and we drove together trying to get him psyched to be there. And we're waiting out in the office. There's no one in the office auditioning. It's over. This is it. And Tom Shadiak, at this point in time, you know, as Larry Miller knows, if it's the last audition, Tom Shadiak knows who he wants. He has his first choice, which, as an artist, you don't really realize... That maybe if you went in a little earlier you might be that choice but Dave didn't he waited he waited he waited and finally went in and he didn't even understand that the stakes were higher because now he this is it you either got it or you don't and he's got somebody in mind to do it and I remember right before Dave went in he said I have an idea Barry I have an idea sort of involves charlie barnett and def jam comedy i said okay because charlie barnett i represented and him and Dave were very close and charlie was the greatest street performer of all time very high energy and we'll talk about him dave says get me a towel i said what he says get me a towel can you get me a towel I said, sure, I'll find a towel. I ran all over the lot to try to find one of those white towels that went around his neck. He got it. He put it around his neck. He says, I got this, B. And I waited in the other room. Tom Shadyak called him in. And I hear all this... Yelling and loud screaming like a Def Jam comic would, you know, like the most animated Def Jam comic ever with that that urban, almost ebonical kind of, like, diction that you'd see on a Def Jam thing, and it was so loud in there, and I'm like, you couldn't hear any laughter because it was just him and Tom, nobody else. And he came out of the office, and Tom Shadyac came out of the office, and he was like... That's exactly what I was looking for. That was wonderful. I'll call you guys tomorrow. And Dave Chappelle went in there at the last minute and channeled Charlie Barnett and the Def Jam comic, because as he was walking in, I could see him pulling down his pants a little lower and putting his, pulling his boxer shorts up a little higher, pulling his hat on his head to the side and down, and he did it. He got the gig. For those of you out there who are in the business or in any business, you're always going to be in a situation when you go into an audition or you go into a job interview or wherever you go. And there's always a choice. There's always a first choice. Even if you're the first person in, there's somebody in their mind that isn't you. And my advice to you would be don't psych yourself out. Don't think you can't do it. Just think about going in there and creating those holy shit moments, creating an original impression for whoever you're trying to impress. And if you do that, and as I say, and if you're undeniable, you will always be in a position to win. And even if you don't get that gig... In that person's mind, you will always be there for his next gig, and you will probably get that next gig, or you'll get another role in the movie, or you'll get another job position where you are at that firm. So just go forward, positive, and do an original, unique presentation of the best representation of yourself and I guarantee you, you will always get the job. Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it, because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to berrycats.com click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever.
1: Here we go in three, two, we ain't one at
2: a time in here. We're Let's communicate. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not
0: comfortable with the tone this is
2: taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? now? by the air!
0: Thank you so much, everybody, for listening and passing on these podcasts that hopefully have inspired you to get to the next level. If you ever get the chance, I would be honored if you went to my website, Barrycats.com slash podcast. And if you ever feel like buying anything on Amazon, just click on my Amazon banner. Buy whatever you want. Just by doing that, it helps put my kids through college because every day dollar goes to my kids college education it doesn't cost you anything and it helps support me and the show if you get a chance to do that i'd be touched and very grateful welcome back to another episode of industry standard with me barry katz excited to say the least I'm going to give Larry Miller his due. As one of Hollywood's most recognizable faces, Larry Miller has appeared in over 100 films and television shows. He was born in Valley Stream, New York, know it well, and he began his career with a memorable scene alongside Richard Gere and Julia Roberts in the blockbuster film, one of my favorites of all time, Pretty Woman in 1990. He has since gone on to unforgettable roles in such films as The Princess Diaries, The Nutty Professor, B-Movie, and Ten Things I Hate About You, directed by Gil Younger, I believe. That's right. He's also a proud member of Christopher Guest Ensemble cast in the films Waiting for Guffman. Oh, boy. Should I say no more? Best <laughs> in show, a mighty Wind, and for your consideration. Miller has made dozens of appearances on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno and also Johnny Carson, correct? Yes. The Late Show with David Letterman and Real Time with Bill Maher. And believe me... If you think a roast is hard, try doing real-time with Bill Maher. That's another muscle entirely. He has also starred in his own HBO comedy specials and on Broadway and Neil Simon's hit play, The Dinner Party. His other television credits include, but not limited to, Desperate Housewives, Medium Burn Notice, Law and & Order, and a most memorable appearance as the vindictive doorman in the hit show Seinfeld. Miller currently hosts the well-respected and well-listened to, always in the top 50 or 100 podcasts on iTunes, The Larry Miller Show, where he unleashes a barrage of humor about the absurdities of everyday life. Let me tell you something. You think a podcast is hard interviewing people? Try doing a podcast where you have no guests every fucking week, and you kill it, and people tune in more and more, and it gets bigger and bigger every single week in addition he's a contributing humorist to the huffington post and the weekly standard as well as the author of the best-selling book spoiled rotten america miller frequently tours the country with his own one-person comedy show i know you're gonna like him a lot because i love him
2: please welcome my guest larry miller boy i mean sincerely that's a that's a heck of an introduction (laughs) <laughs> I mean, that's even from heaven. My parents could look at each other and just go, "Well, that was pretty good."
0: <laughs> well, we could arrange that. Is that what they said to you when you were younger, when you did something well, Larry? That was that was pretty good.
2: <laughs> we had a great, great, time. They were great parents, and I don't have a, a tough story about
0: childhood. You have to have something because it's my belief, and you can shatter this belief. That in order for somebody to be as great as you are at comedy acting and writing you had to have had a hole blown through you at some point in time in your life what was that
2: well I for years I would have said gee I don't think so but now I'm l- looking back and inside and thinking I must have had something and you know it was a little league paper out kind of neighborhood and my parents were tough people, and in the best sense of that, and they, uh, boy, they knew how to really get get along and get by. There was nothing shy about them, you know. And a line of my act, in fact, about them, my that my my father had three jobs and went to school at night. If I go to the cleaners and the bank in the same day, I need a nap. <laughs> <laughs> and that is a theme. Also, is that everyone knows? You know that I parents uh, you you know i I have a theory that the parents are twice as tough as you and their parents were twice as tough as them how that's even possible i don't know and the great grandparents same thing same thing tough and that's how we by the way that's how you well settle a country and make it and build it you know that art they were all whenever they came to america in this case it was uh, my grandparents and then one generation before but they were all such tough people. They, were, you know, getting these wagons. I imagine sometimes. Well, they, you know, they they, they, could, they could be hitting the wagon at a boulder. Nothing stopped them. They would just the, the dad would just lean out and go, <laughs> and just eat through it. You know, they would just so tough. I imagine sometimes, seriously, going up to a, a covered wagon. Obviously, it's a, it's a, it's a it's a fantasy of where the family's ready to go. And they are even starting from somewhere in Ohio, and they, they're heading west. And that if you tapped your finger on that guy's shoulder, on, on the father's shoulder, and uh, he, he turned around, if you wanted to ask him something, what would that face look like when he turned around? And I think, I think it would be something we don't look like. That we don't act like that. That we are not. That it, it would be. It would be, so, it would you be know, something man, like yeah. just would yeah, be a male adult. <laughs> you know, just just tough as nails. Nothing stopped them. I I think that's really laudable. I think that's really so. What was it? What was the hole blown in me? I I, I don't. Maybe, maybe I don't know. I think that we. I was thinking before that we all had in, in school. We all had fights or fist fights and. But they never lasted very long. And it wasn't like fights with guns or clubs or something. I was thinking back on a couple of those of the. One of my friends, Billy Walsh, and I used to have a rule that we'll never run. And we weren't that tough. How old were you? Well, fighting time. This is 15 to 19 or something. Mm-hmm. I don't make this just sound the wrong way. We weren't. But we didn't. If there was a fight, we would always be. You could count on us. To at least be there, and hopefully, we always hoped, against their don't-want-to-run guy. But that doesn't work out that much.
0: Yeah, but you just said, you you just said for that particular thing, that you weren't a guy who backed down with your friends. So you would fight, you would fist-fight these people.
2: Yeah, but we we didn't win a lot.
0: (laughs) So you got the shit kicked out of you a lot.
2: Well, yeah, but... uh, but again, it wasn't. things didn't take that long. It wasn't like a 14-minute a whooping.
0: Now, Christopher Titus once said to me, his advice to his son when he got beat up, he said, listen, it's what I want you to do. I want you to go back to school, and I want you to walk right up to the pe- person who beat you up, and I want you to rear back, and I want you to punch him in the face as hard as you can. Okay, And then what's going to happen next, you're going to get the shit beaten out of you but that kid will never touch you again was that true of you when you got beat up
2: no but that's a good story <laughs> i mean it is and you want to say i'm sure everyone watching wants to say that sort of makes sense you know it doesn't sound like fatherly advice the way we well we it's think christopher of titus yeah, come on but that's that sounds like uh Good advice. I told my kids who are good athletes, and the uh, our older son is a marine now. In fact, and uh, they're 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 tough guys and great athletes. And I was t- told them, you know, even when you're afraid, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of of hitting someone. That don't be afraid of stepping up and saying that, even if you don't like the things you're saying, step up and say it. And step up and act on it. And if if someone hits you, hit back and just start punching like mad. And I've talked to some of their coaches, and uh, when somebody said uh, this or that about one of my kids, the kid who's a Marine now, in fact, and I said, listen, I told him to, uh, to make a slugfest out of it, so I just want you to know that. And if uh, this kid says that again, you know, he's going to, whether it's a dugout or a locker room, and uh, the coach said... Well, I feel the same way. It sounds good to me. And I wasn't looking for approval. I mean, I just wanted to let him know that if anything ever happened again, you know, that uh, my kid was going to be the one to help make it happen.
0: Now, I feel like you were, I'm sorry to keep going back to the well, sure. but I feel like you were really close and on to something. I think there's something that you're getting at that could be really valuable to everybody listening.
2: Good. and I, And good for me, too. I would like to know.
0: So let's go back to your growing up. Uh, okay. you're, you're growing up. You have how many brothers and sisters in your family? One, older sister. And so you're there with your mom and dad. Do you live in a home that they bought? Do you rent? Does your parents rent? Is it like a situation where you're poorer than the rest of the people in your area? Or is it the kind of area where everybody's in the same boat?
2: I would say roughly same boat. It was house on Long Island and, as I mentioned before, Little League, paper out kind of place. And But for all the good in that, that's not putting it down. You know, there was a lot of uh, good routine that that we had. I never understood, even as a kid, when songwriters would make fun of or put their childhoods down or their parents down for, yes, it's the same, and then I know what they're going to say now, and it's really boring to be here, and I don't approve of this kind of childhood. And I always, even as a kid, I always said, you really ought to. You really ought to uh, approve because I don't think you're looking at it at all the right way. It's like with, with, with dogs sometimes. I think we make fun for years, years, decades of dogs always going over the top with their greetings when you come home. And I always felt, and I still feel, we're looking at it the wrong way. We should be like that. We should be like the dog. We should learn from the dog. That dog, our dog, gives such love greetings. When he comes home, and I always say to my kids and my wife, who don't do that, I always, I always want to say, and I, and I have said before, look at him. Look, Ozzy's doing great. He's. This is how you should live. This is how we should all live, so that every second of reuniting is like the first one. And uh, so I, I, I think, is there. I, I don't see any anything any any drawbacks in in that childhood. I guess I had the same fantasies as well, anyone: be I, a soldier and.
0: I think you just hit on something. Oh and yeah. I, I tell me if I'm wrong. Go ahead. From as early as you could remember until you graduated high school, is there a number of times that you could count that your dad told you he loved you?
2: It's a good question. I, uh, right off the bat, I. I don't know because I would always said always have said and still say my parents are the most loving people in the world. I'm not sure I can't necessarily recall any of any times or ways my dad, as you said would would say that. I say it all the time maybe there's something in that. There
0: is. And so that, to me,
2: when I sit across from you... That's the whole... That's
0: what shapes you as a comedian because you said your dad worked three jobs. Yeah. When somebody works three jobs, (laughs) not a lot of attention given to you as a child, not a lot of love dished out because there's so much pressure to put food on the table and keep a roof over their heads that... The thought of saying "I love you" is just an after. He has to know I he has to know I love him. So, you know I, I I don't have the time, but he has to see the love from all the time I'm putting these jobs to help him survive here and have a good life or the best life possible. And so, probably the reason why stand up was so exciting to you was because. Not only did you get love, but the laughter, and when you combine that by a hundred people, or two hundred people, or a thousand people, that's a lot of "I love yous."
2: Fair enough. I'm just thinking about that. I
0: the analogy you said with the dog is just brilliant, and I've never, I've never had anybody say that to me, and I'm going to carry that with me for the rest of my life. It's just a great thing because I tell my children that I love them probably too much but I have a feeling that you tell your children that you love them.
2: Oh, yes. And, uh, oh, yes. I want to say something about the uh, stand-up in the audience that you mentioned before that you reminded me of. I could be wrong about this, and I don't say that lightly. It's not just lip service to me. But I could be wrong, but I've never seen it as the comedian gets love from the audience or the comedian wants love from the audience, and I could be wrong a good comic tells the audience they should love themselves. And that this moment, theatrically, when the lights go down, to me, the audience is suddenly always children wearing polo shirts. And I think a a good comic or a great comic, no matter what the style is, is still essentially saying, the lights are low now. The lights are low, and come see what I've brought you. I've brought you some nice gifts. And I agree with that. I mean, I've been doing this too long.
0: There's no one in my lifetime in this business that has ever said anything negative about you. Ever. Oh, that's nice. That's very meaningful. When's the first thing that happens in your life that you see or that inspires you that says, you know... I love to get in this entertainment business.
2: I think it was very early. I always thought it was great to be, well, a singer who moves people, a songwriter who moves people, the same with being a writer who wrote the script who moves people. I thought that was good. I still think it is to be a storyteller. I use the word storyteller a lot because I think that's very powerful. Being a storyteller is a very... Is a very good, very holy thing to do. And uh, the first time, I remember my mom playing one of those uh, records on a record player. Now, there's a couple of words you might not hear a lot, <laughs> and, uh, but uh, records that were plastic, uh, orange records. They were not uh, small, not uh, not jukebox size records, but and I think one it was from a. Uh, Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker Suite and I, lo- I got the story of it I loved the story of it and thinking why and he wrote this to get the story out the music is beautiful and for these you know for people to sing or to, ba- to ballet dance to so I, I think it was then that was, so that was early five or six years old or seven but it was probably before that I've said this before. Any time a comic has come up to me uh, and said, over the years, said, uh, "You know what? I've I've about had it with show business. I've about <laughs> had it with uh, with comedy. I'm, you know what? I I just uh, I would just like to get out, get something else, just get something easier." And I, and I have said every time this happened, and I mean it every time, I say that if you, right now, were given If the committee came down from hearing you say this, and the committee said, we're going to give you a castle in Ireland or Spain, 50 people there to run it, and you'll never have to run anything in it. It's going to be perfect forever. And and we're going to give you $100 million. And all the cooks and all the winemakers or bartenders you could want, and I always say the first night... You're there on the on the ridge, on the terrace, in a parapet. Is that some place you can sit? <laughs> it's the great comedy word, parapet. <laughs> yeah, and I always say, if at that moment when you uh, when you put your you have a a flagon of mead, whatever that is, <laughs> and you put your legs up on it on a table and watch the sun setting over the Atlantic, and Just as you're about to think how relaxing this is, remember, part of this deal is you can never, ever be a performer again. (laughs) Part of the deal is you can never, ever write stories again, write anything again, write jokes again, perform for people again. And that's a never. But look at what you get. And I always say if you make that deal, you're the dumbest man in history because... There is no second of sitting on that terrace that will mean anything to you. And it shouldn't mean anything to you because it's meaningless to you. What means something to you is being a storyteller. A little, is it a little hard for you now? Boo-hoo. That's what you're made for. If you had everything and new shoes and new pants, what, 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 what would any of this mean? And the answer is nothing. So you stay where you are. And you keep slugging away and never, ever say again, I've had it with this business. You don't know what had it is yet. And with luck, you never will.
0: When he was actually sitting in the outer office waiting to see Bart Giamatti, Pete Rose could have benefited from a little pep talk from you.
2: You know what? I've uh, God bless him. I've always been a fan of his, by the way, because just that also always seemed like a guy. I don't know him. I've never met him. But it always seemed like a guy who never quit, never
0: stopped. Because they call him Charlie Hustle. He also knew that he stood out because he gave more of himself and he put more effort out visually than everybody else. And that's what brought to people's attention. And it's a metaphor for everything in life, any job you're at anywhere over the world if you put out more effort than everybody else you're working with chances are you're going to succeed and move up okay so you're leave the house at some point in time how do you start your first days or months in the stand up world what inspires you to go on stage and do stand up where does it happen and who were some of the comedians you started with
2: that moved you it wasn't the ones I started with that moved me. I remember reading a book written by Alan King. He wrote a handful of uh, paperback books about performing about himself. One was, I remember, called Help, I'm Being Held Prisoner in a Chinese Bakery. <laughs> oh, there was some, they were all good, but I remember I was 10 or 11 in my bedroom at home, and I was reading uh, one of those books that I got at the drugstore, and... I remember that's the first time in that book many times, a dozen times, I laughed out loud. I would put the book down or hold it away or put it on the bed and just laugh, shake laughing. Wonderful laughing. I remember my dad and I used to stay up late to watch Don Rickles when he was a guest (laughs) on the Johnny Carson show because we knew, and it was true every time, we knew that we would be laughing. And we liked doing that. And so it was people that I saw on TV or that I had read who really made me laugh. And I knew somehow, I don't know how, but I knew somehow being a comic was a good way to be everything I wanted to be. Which, as you said before, means you're the director, Writer, producer, and, and star of your own show. And whether it's 10 minutes or 10 hours. I'm not sure if that gets to the, to the question. I had uh, the people I knew when I was starting out, which was at the comic strip in New York. And uh, the people I, well, my, uh, my guys were uh, Seinfeld, Reiser. Uh, jimmy brogan mark schiff carol liefer hacks <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know for those of you who don't know about the comic strip it was owned by I love that word <laughs> it was owned by two uh, gentlemen uh, named bob wax and richie tinkin uh, and
2: uh, john mcgowan and three. john
0: mcgowan i'm sorry they managed a young comedian who—that's right—started there after coming up from Long Island in a group called the Amazing Triplets with Bob Nelson and
2: Richie Minervini.
0: Richie Minervini, maybe, and that was Eddie Murphy.
2: That's right. They were their friend Tony DeAndrea, It was a great comic, and uh, she's a great performer. And Tony was going on at Catcherizing Star. On a Monday night, the, the, these guys, Richie and John, were had owned bars and restaurants, and they were tough guys. They were a little older than us, I guess, five or ten years older than us. But they, which is to me just like kids, it's just like a friend. But they, they, <laughs> they were tough. They came from a, a, t- a tough business, and they were they were not shy. And I just always liked them. <laughs> I'm laughing because only they. Uh, they asked me to be they liked me too and they asked they gave me a job as a bartender there and uh, i did two nights there two nights as a bartender and uh, and i was thrilled but i knew i never said anything about this but i don't know how to make drinks <laughs> i mean i don't know how i i can i can open a bottle of beer and theoretically i know how to make a gin and tonic or a scotch and soda but they would never be exact and they would never be equal or and every time (laughs) a waitress came in and said uh, ordered she put the tray down and i liked them we we all knew each other and uh ordered seven drinks and uh you know two brandy alexanders and three uh flirt on a beach or something like that and uh (laughs) then and you know she'd list them and i I would just say i would bring back seven bottles of budweiser (laughs) and just open them there and give them to and they we really liked each other and they'd say to me uh well, they didn't order beer. And I said, tell them it's free because <laughs> I can't make the others. And they said, are you sure? And I said, I don't know. Tell them it's free. See what happens. And it was never sent back. They, all liked, they were all thrilled. And, uh, but it reminded me because I did that a lot. I, can't, I still can't believe they brought me back for a second night. That's what I can't get. Because that, that was so obvious on the first night that the 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 in the beer well there it looked like a canoe and <laughs> and i remember saying that at one point john came in but a little late uh riser had come in he was going on and he said to me I was behind the bar with my leg up on the speed rack doing a crossword puzzle and he said uh, hey i wrote a new bit uh come on in and see it i said great so I, I walked in, in with the bar, and uh, John came in about uh, 10 minutes later, who was, uh, he and I always got along great. It was, uh, he came in and strolling, he's the, he's the squire of the manor there. <laughs> he, he owns the place. But he didn't, the waitress said say, Hey, John, hello, hello, ladies. And then he looked around, and He the first thing he saw, of course, was there's no bartender. <laughs> That's a serious sin, a dramatic sin. There's no bartender. And he said, Where's Larry? And uh, they, they all just said, oh, Paul came in and he said he wrote a new bit and he asked Larry if he would look at it and maybe give some help on on rewriting it. And so Larry went in to see it. And there was like a 5, four, three, 2, 1, you know, blue, green, orange. That's, this is the, the greatest sin. So he blasts through into the doors there that had a little, uh, a little uh, just a four-foot area in between the doors that go to the showroom. Just as I was... A swinging door there at the comic strip. Yeah, in many senses. <laughs> and he, he said, uh, before you could even speak, uh, I didn't pick things up really quickly. I, I wasn't that f- fast on noticing things. And I said to him, oh, hi, uh, John. And uh, and he, he got out the, the, the question, where, where are you? Where were you? And he just, and I said to him, because it was so natural, I just said, oh, but Paul came and he wrote a new bit. And uh, he wanted me to see it, and I didn't. It's a good bit, by the way, but I think he can. Uh, I think he can <laughs> rewrite and put one section in front of the other. And um, anyway, I might have said, "Anywho, who. you know, I just, oh, I'll, I'll be back at the at the bar, and he he didn't even react. He couldn't understand. Richie and John were great guys, but they couldn't quite understand all these kids from Long Island and New Jersey and Westchester. Who were wearing Levi's and sneakers and and telling jokes? A few years later, John and I would become friends. We're uh, we were at a, another place, and we we always ordered beer together because he liked cold beer, and he and so did I, and we'd split bottles. And he just said to me, "We got to you know talking about this." He said, "Yeah, I never and uh, it took me a while to understand you guys. I don't think I I still do. Is that I thought well that thing with the." Uh, like going to see Riza, leaving the bar. You know, he, he said, I, I, I didn't know what to do. I thought I'd have to take you to Jersey. And then, then it, it hit me a few minutes later. He didn't live in New Jersey. And he wasn't kidding. <laughs> take you to Jersey meant didn't mean and bring you back from New Jersey. It meant, you know, go to that area around Giants Stadium
0: it meant Which, uh, it wh- meant recreating Aaron Hernandez.
2: It meant, yikes! And uh, at any rate, I. But that didn't. That didn't. Were you, you know, performing
0: while you were bartending? Yeah, sure. And so you so you start out there at the comic strip. Tell me about your experience in feeling in your mind, like the moment where you said to yourself, "I'm never going to." Have to work a job like a bartender ever again. I'm going to make all my money now as a stand up. I'm going to pay my rent and I'm going to pay my bills and I'm never looking back.
2: I don't know that I ever had a moment like that or reached a level like that of thinking. I kept growing as a comic, which really pleased me, made me very happy. You get to be an A act, we used to call it, where they could be uh, then a uh, an MC and start to get higher. Those were the also the years when comedy clubs were starting to pop up all around the country, and that was good too. But I and I also knew, gee, I'd like to be an actor too, and I'd like to be a writer too, and so I'm not. I remember Jerry telling me a, thing, a couple of things of... You know, they made, Jerry Seinfeld. Yeah, and then saying, you know, hey, this is this is great, they made you an AI act now. And, and uh, he was really proud of that and pleased with that. And I and said, oh, all right. And he knew with me too that he'd look at me and say, you know, you're really not hearing that, are you? You really don't understand what that means. Well, I did maybe, but I didn't. And I, I just kept doing... There's still a lot for me to learn, but I just kept working as a comic and getting all the stories about what working as a comic means and loving it, really loving it, never being embarrassed or shy about anything, even the jobs that didn't go well. I was just recalling there was one in Ottawa in Canada where they kept you at a, at a motel, all the comics they bring you up, and uh, I think it was called the East Wind uh, Motel, and it wasn't a nice place at all. It was like a single-room occupancy, which is uh, a guy died next to me in the next room. And But you don't think of these things. I never I never thought of, well, we, we didn't even know at the time he could just call the owner and just say, I can't do this, you know, you got to put me in someplace decent. we just stayed there. It's the kind of place where, and Jerry's room too, they put us all in the same room week after week. It had... Uh, a hole in the window, and it was just a thin window pane, but a hole in the glass that was stuffed with newspaper. I never understood why newspaper became the thing to do. But no one ever said, can we fix the window? Can I get another room? We, you just sleep with your winter coat on. Because it was pretty cold in there. and But I never thought of that as anything horrible neither did Jerry neither did any of the fellows who all worked there we just thought boy that's a little crazy we never thought we were crazy for not saying can you get me out of here and so i loved all that i never thought that i'm really i'm really doing it now even though i knew i was doing it now
0: so what was the there had to be something that happened that after you did it you noticed Wow, there's a lot more money and a lot more opportunity happening now than there was before this. What was that first big break or big thing that propelled you to another level?
2: Well, I had some really good jobs along the way where you you think, well, this is pretty good. I was seen at the Improv in here in Los Angeles by Milton Berle and his wife at the time, and he was awfully nice. And they sat me down afterwards just to chat and get to know each other. And uh, he he asked for my number. I gave him my number. And he put my name in, and they hired me. He slash they hired me for a big Western charity ball that happens in in Hollywood all the time. I don't know what this means, by the way. A circular
0: motion with your finger
2: in your hands. But it was in a big, big room, and it's where it was famous. I'm sure they still keep doing it, but it's where everyone dresses like uh, the Old West, but everyone, meaning stars and uh, stars, you know, beautiful women and handsome men, and they all came to this place. How did you, How did you dress, Larry? I put on a, I got a Western shirt, pearlish buttons, and to me that was, and so I wore a pair of jeans and a, and a, the, a Western shirt. I, I'm not someone who looks that, I could do this, I'd love to do it in any any movie. I'd love to be in another Silverado. But it's not that wearing a cowboy hat, I look like a cowboy. It's not exactly <laughs> that. It's it, it really isn't. I put on a western hat, a cowboy hat, and even cowboys, even someone someone land from Mars and look at me and go, uh, that doesn't. <laughs> and uh, but I did that, and Nancy Sinatra was in the audience, and. She called her dad She was very sweet and called her dad uh, The next day and said I saw a guy last night and she said something very nice The guy you ought to use to open for you And uh, about uh, Well a few days after that I got a call from Jilly Rizzo Who was his manager Who was a, a well known restaurant owner And they were the best of friends And I and I would uh, And I rented a tuxedo and went to Las Vegas And and open for frank sinatra
0: this is the kind of stuff that you always want to hear you in any walk of life you do great work somebody sees it they talk about you but what has to happen next is the next time that person sees you you have to be equal to or better than the way you were with the last person and then When people see you there, they talk about you to more people. And then there's bigger people, more important people. And then you have to do better or equal to what you did before. And so that's what you did. So take our audience through your stomach churning your mind of that flight to Las Vegas. And from when you get off the plane to when you go on. And meet Frank Sinatra and go on and perform as well.
2: How does that go? Tell us about it. Well, it was pretty neat. I don't think I was nervous. Uh, and I would say it if I if I if I had been. I, I just I rented a tux and packed it in with my other stuff and flew to Las Vegas and I was staying at the hotel there. It was then the Bally Grand Hotel, and uh, and it's well thanks not just always going to work in nice places but i mean at the time then i i didn't have anyone with me i didn't have a group or friends i still wish i had brought my parents out in fact i can't believe i didn't do that but so that, that night i had a, a dressing room i brought everything on these are really big nice dressing rooms these are like little homes It's like a it's like an apartment but not a small one and it's just a dining room and nice furniture and uh you when know, I started looking around, and say, you know, it was like this. and But I mean... <laughs> like this. Yeah, you know, like shiny black stuff and really nice, comfy everything. And I hung up the tux in the dressing area, and it had a dining room, kitchen, bedroom. It was a nice place to live. But I had that night, that first night, and I went there early. I went there at 4.30 or 5.00. Because, number one, where else am I going to go? Number two, I thought that was neat. Look at this. I'm opening for Frank Sinatra. So I went down to the dressing room and hung stuff up and then just sat quietly against the wall in the plastic chair just sitting there. <laughs> and and that was fine, too. And then I started to a certain point. I looked at my like, Well, I, I want to get dressed, I guess. And this was probably about 6, uh, 30, quarter to 7. And I just did what, especially what guys do, I guess, I just took my clothes off and and... I was gonna wear, wear boxer shorts, and I was so I took the pants, you know, down around the ankles. I took shoes and socks off, and they were. And at that point, I heard a knock on the door, and I just <laughs> looked around, and there was an uh, the door opened, There was an uh, an older fella uh, looked kind of like a butler or something, and uh, and I'm standing there. There's no shirt, and I was gonna change underwear, so the underwear was kind of down. <laughs> and um, and the pants are down and i'm barefoot and i just you know looked over there and he looked out to me and, and just with a smile and, and just went like this to me So he and, waved
0: with his finger
2: yeah and and then then he walked away and left the door open and i what in the world is that so i so i i just did the frankenstein shuffle with your pants down and the underwear was down hanging it was just Ridiculous, and at that second, I got into the center of the room, the living room area heading to close close the door, and at that second, Frank Sinatra comes around the door in in his tuxedo and all ready to go on and it won't surprise you to know he he looked pretty good I mean that face and the blue eyes it was just like everyone would say just holy mackerel that's not and i'm just standing there the, the way i was and he came up to me and uh, right up to me with a smile he just said larry i just want to tell you my daughter nancy says you're a very very funny man and he said something just nice stuff and just said listen you're going to do great here we always get good people And don't worry about anything. He said, "And listen, after the show, I'm going to have a little party in my dressing room there. Uh, So, you know, you'll please come over and join us. And I wasn't really even saying that. I was just kind of, oh, okay," You know, and and I was just smiling. And he even gave me, I think you have to be, you know, an Italian star to do this, to be able to do the, the, the pinch and the. So you pinched your cheek and yeah, slapped you know, and it, but <laughs> with, in, your path, with your pants, with your in great ways though. I mean, there was with such your, an, with your yeah. boxer shorts around your ankles, everything, <laughs> and and he did. But he was so nice, and he said, you know, and uh, give me a little wink. Said you're going to be great, and well, I'll see you after. Oh, yeah, you know, and uh, and then he just turned and walked out and then as he's walking out he said over his shoulder he said by the way if that's in your act I hope you close with it <laughs> and and then he closed the door and I we've well, just met Frank Sinatra you know you're in Las Vegas for the first time you're going to open at the hotel there the biggest gambling place that's it all pretty great in terms of thinking, well, I'm I'm in show business now, I guess. And he, that night, after I did my set, and it was they wanted an 18-minute set, and uh, that's what you do, because if you're a pro, you know, you don't. Well, you just do it, and that's anything else is stupid. But as I would finish, I, I, I put the uh, put the mic back in the stand and just kind of smiled and waved and. Uh, <laughs> I could hear the band behind the curtain. They had the curtain behind me, only a few feet behind me, that they were going to lift through so the band, the orchestra. Uh, just striking up softly, but he, everyone heard it. And even the striking up just sounded like the coolest thing in the world. And uh, so I started to walk off stage right... And Frank would come on without an introduction. I mean... Please, who needs to tell him? <laughs> Our next performer you've seen many times. So he, he comes on, and he's got his own mic. Somebody kind of darted off and took the one I was, I was using. And then he, he every night, starting with that first night, he'd say to me, wait a minute, Larry, come over here, Larry. <laughs> and I, I, I turned around and kind of walked back to him, and he put his arm around my shoulder, and he said, Larry Miller, funny man. Come fly with me, come fly, <laughs> we'll fly away. And he started to, and the band now with the curtain <laughs> di, 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 di. so I didn't dash off, but I, oh, and you know, I just walked off and uh, and then walked back behind the orchestra, behind the stage, and they're f- thumping it, ba-da, it's fabulous. And I came around the stage, left there, and they had a big table. With drinks, everything there, liquor and uh, champagne and everything, and they gave me. I'd say, can I watch him from here? You know, just from uh, to stand against the one of the curtains there. So you're kind of on, not on stage, but you're on the on stage part and just kind of watching. And uh, Jilly Rizzo poured a glass of whiskey for me and handed it to me, and I said oh, thanks, thanks, and he just, you know, smiled. And and I'd, I'd stand there and just watch Frank Sinatra work, which was pretty great. And by the, uh, by the third night, and he did that every night, Larry, no, come here, Larry, come over here, Larry, which was so cool. Larry Miller, funny man, come <laughs> play with me. It was so great. And then finally, by the third night or so, I just turned to Jilly, who was standing there with me. He was just behind me. And I said, I guess I'm in show business now, huh? And he said something again. You have to be kind of cool to do. He kind of swirled what he was drinking. just said, absolutely, baby. (laughs) And drank that and just handed his glass off without looking. And someone took it and filled it again. And I thought, just yikes, wow. (laughs) And then I went to the party afterwards. And I'd just sit there on a couch like this against the wall. And there was a guy there. He wanted to know what Los Angeles was like to me, and he was, if you called Central Casting for, <laughs> tough guy, guy who owns everything, including the building you're in or something, but he was a tough guy and he he was saying things to me like, I believe in a frontier justice. <laughs> that was one of the phrases <laughs> I remember, and I'd say, and it's just me and him, and so oh well yeah, and he said, you believe in that too, and. It, yeah, you know, I don't, because uh, I can, you know, what does that mean exactly? What do I? Is there something I have to do now? <laughs> and he, but he was just great to hang out with, and I was sitting there. And I, I I had a drink, but it didn't seem like drinking was the thing to do there or then. And this is Frank Sinatra. It's a fabulous party. I don't know how many people. I guess about 20 people there and uh, seven or eight really pretty women, like very, very pretty.
0: Did you get a lot of action back then in Las Vegas?
2: No, not, <laughs> not, not in any kind of real sense. No, I was just, there was never a woman anyone. that
0: came up to you after a show and said, here's my room number, come up and see me.
2: Well, no. And I, now that you mentioned it, it kind of makes me mad. I suppose. <laughs> Shouldn't there have been, I loved it. I loved it every night, and I was there just for what a week week and a half and it was just great and that was pretty sure there are fellows who've done all sorts of things So they have written with f- Frank Sinatra or been in movies together and well I'd like to have done all sorts of things, but i don't I can't beat opening form in las vegas and uh and loving it and being absorbed and and being liked I
0: I can't help but think as you're telling the story that in your early years you would sit with your dad at like between 1130 and 1am waiting for Don Rickles to come out on the Tonight Show and laughing and how many times did Rickles do things with uh, Frank or come out and surprise Frank and there's so many famous things about when they did that and and the fact that you there in your small town in Valley Stream are watching it on your, you know, with a TV probably that had pliers and a rabbit ears or whatever it was. Yeah. And and then just a few short years later, you're yeah. opening for Frank Sinatra in Vegas where Don Rickles had opened for Frank early on and had worked with Frank. That's just an incredible thing. And I just... and Yeah. I, it's amazing. And and I how did you address Frank Sinatra? Did you call him Frank or Mr. Sinatra?
2: There there well there wasn't a lot of addressing necessary. You know, man, i calling from a yeah, one second. Hey, Frank. You know, there wasn't a lot of calling <laughs> necessary. I just loved being there. It was great. Fantastic. It was it was it was neat. Sometimes I knew a couple of people there who were working in Las Vegas also and sometimes we'd Get a bite together. After the after, you could get a bite at, you know, midnight, 1, 2 in the morning if you wanted. Well, you know that. Everyone knows that. You know, Las Vegas is open late. <laughs> it is.
0: All right. So we got your first real big personal appearance break. Talk about your first national television appearance doing stand-up and that break, or the first big one, which I imagine might be The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson.
2: I was on uh, the David Letterman show several times before that, and the Merv Griffin show several times before that. Those are all great, and that's that's no kidding. And the John Davidson show before that. But the thing, I was very lucky, the thing you wanted, and every comic wanted, and not everyone got, was to be, noticed. Jim McCauley was seeing people at that time.
0: Jim McCauley was a famous producer and talent scout for The Tonight Show.
2: And that's right. And he's passed on now, too, and uh, he, uh, he hired me. I, he said you could do the show. Not the first time he saw me, but uh, well, the second or third time. It's
0: well documented that Carol Leifer auditioned for the show between 20 and 25
2: times. Oh, how do you like that? Well, it goes to show you, you know, you just, that's another thing about show business. Do you stop? Do you go to a castle in Spain? No. You keep whacking away. You redo it and you whack away again. And there's there's a uh, there's a good story involving another suit of clothes about the the Tonight Show. The the uh, they, I I was lucky. I did it a few times and it was wonderful. And you could and you, all comics wanted to get the the big okay from Johnny when you looked over there.
0: There were several different things that happened on the Tonight Show, but we'll just go with three of them. If you didn't do that well or you didn't think you did that well, he would just say your name and we'll be right back. If you did well, he would look over and give you the OK sign with his fingers with your thumb and forefinger together in the O and your three fingers up like that, and you knew you were going to come back. And in about six or seven different cases... You were called over to the couch on your first time on the Tonight Show, like Stephen Wright or the late Skip Stevenson or Freddie Prinze. Yeah. Um, and but for most comics, they were just hoping to
2: come back, and you got the okay. Yeah, yeah which was pretty great. And then I was I was called over to the couch. Or I think around the fourth time, and which was pretty great too you sit there and just you walking over to johnny carson closer than this it's such and an
0: honor it's the one of the greatest honors and most <laughs> comedians never get that no matter how many times they've done it and and you don't know that he's going to call you over right you prepare in your mind for a bit or something to say that you can work in but you can never really prepare for what's about to happen so take us through no. it
2: it was just wonderful, but not because I did anything. I was just sitting there and he was closer and he, as we, uh, as I sat down, he, uh, he, he he said to me, "Good stuff." <laughs> and uh, with a big smile and I said, uh, "You know and thank you." And uh, he said, "We'll be right back." And then during the commercial break, he talked to me about one of the one of the bits I did. And you know how maybe, you know, reversing this or doing that and I just said, wow and I, I can't remember what he said because I was just I was just buzzing that I'm talking to him and he's giving me tips. It's just great. Here's a good here's a good uh story I don't think anyone's ever had. He I was on the show again, uh well, a few times later or or a bunch later, maybe ten times and I was thrilled every time. I never took it for granted any time. And in the makeup room there, I went back into my dressing room, which was just across from the makeup room, and Dana Delaney was on the show. And she was this, the number one, the star on the show. And if you, if, if you know, people know, she's not only a great actress, she's just wonderful, but she's really gorgeous. She's seriously gorgeous. She's no kidding around gorgeous. And... <laughs> She was wearing what a lot of the women used to wear, which was a gown, excuse me, and uh, long white gloves and some pearls. They really dolled up. You were on the Johnny Carson show. And he came over to me. I was standing there in the dressing room and it was one of my agents, and my manager there at that time. And uh, and Johnny Carson came over. He was going somewhere. He came down from his area. And uh, he came in, just stood at the doorway there, he just said, Larry, good to see you. And I said, Wow. And I just walked over and said, Well, it's thank you. It's great to be back. And he said, I just came to say hello and uh and this and that. And I said, Well, thanks, yeah. And uh and then Dana Delaney walked out of the dressing room area, rather the makeup room, which is right across from my dressing room. And she uh she's wearing everything. She's just got made up in the hair. And God bless her, she's so beautiful. And a stunning figure and she's wearing the the red gown and uh, with the gloves and the pearls and the whatever and the high and the high heel satin shoes or whatever the thing is but she just looked incredible and she came over and just said uh, hi johnny and he says hi to her and and then she smiles at me and, and johnny introduces us and uh and she said uh, all right there just a brief interchange there of five or 10 seconds she said all right i'll see you out there and she you know she walked down the hall to her dressing room and at that at that uh, second johnny smiles and nods and i smiled and nod. and uh, johnny turned to me and just said wow <laughs> now only he could say that I'm not an impressionist, but that wow, wow! And I thought I just had a guy moment with Johnny Carson. It wasn't anything bad. It was just saying, "Holy mackerel!" And uh, and I said, "Yeah, you know." At that point, there was no standing on any pretense. I just said, "Yeah, that's oh. You know, God bless us. As I, as I think I said to him, I said, "As my father used to say." God bless her, she's a healthy kid. (laughs) Which is what he used to say to someone with a really good figure. (laughs) Healthy kid meant,
0: well, you know what it meant. All right, now take us through your first big break in the film business, which I would imagine is Pretty Woman.
2: Well, sure, by golly, Pretty Woman. I've always loved Gary Marshall, and he directed that, and he hired me. Dory Zuckerman is a casting woman who brought me in she knew me from everything from plays out here I was in from the improv as a comic and she was involved with getting as you know in a lot of Gary Marshall movies they'll have four or five folks in them who can really do a good job but you don't really know just love the guy and uh, at that you know at that point to go see she brought me in he wanted to see me improv a little and so she brought me into well a casting meeting with him in a hotel somewhere or in no offices. And I sat there and he just, you know, set me up for, there was no part written for, for that guy, the manager of the, of the clothing store. And, uh, so I did a couple of things and, and we laughed and just, it was just great to be Dory was there and it was fabulous. And then I found out I got the part and that spending, it's only one day's shooting, but a great day and that was in Beverly Hills and, and
0: that's what a lot of people don't know who aren't in the entertainment business cuz you see Larry and I believe it was two th- no three scenes was it was it three scenes Larry I can't remember I know there were two big scenes yeah and, and But a lot of uh, people don't understand that how is it possible that he did one day when it seemed like he was in the movie. And what they do for continuity's sake is they shoot in that store. All those scenes get shot all at one time, uh, back to back to back to back, and then they're cut in the movie. But a lot of people think, well, he must have worked a week or two or whatever, but that's not the case.
2: No, and it was wonderful. I got a chance to—we just— made up and added a lot of stuff. I Felt like calling the, <laughs> the... For the sales girls, the... I uh, just... Uh, I remember just saying, um, Mary Pat, Mary Kate, Mary Francis, tofa come on, everyone over here now. And it just felt fun to me and funny to do it that way. I remember, I remember shouting out to someone on the set in between takes, what's another Mary? Mary, 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 Mary? Mary Pat, Mary Kate. And then someone said, Mary Francis. I said, Mary Francis, that, that'll do. And then, and action. But... It was wonderful, and then all the bits Gary knows how to do so well, whew, and tell me now you come in, and he'll say, "Oh, well, what do you know? Yes, is it going well? Is it going well?" And you, you say, "And action," you know. <laughs> he's just, but he knows, he knows who he's working with. He knows who he's dealing with, and it was just great. And there was a feeling on the set that day that Dory told me that it was good, that it was working really well.
0: And I'm going to share with our audience what it means to work really well on a set for a stand-up comedian who does his first acting job or one of his first acting jobs or even those in the future. There's one thing that happens when you know that you've done a great job. You finish a take where you've done their words or you've improved your own, and the director yells, cut. And there is like, it's like it's like 80 people have held in their laughter for like three minutes. And then it just bursts out like some kind of orgasmic thing. And you're like, you're on the set and you hear all these people laughing and applauding because they can't laugh during the scene or it'll ruin it. And that's what probably happened to you, Larry.
2: Yeah, it was very meaningful. It was just great and lunch on the set again these don't sound like astonishing things but they really are and uh, they sure were for me and my parents were staying with me at that point they were visiting and staying in my apartment and I you know again I know this doesn't sound very fancy I didn't put them up at the Four Seasons and I could have but I, did, I didn't I said you know you want to stay with me and they could stay in my bed which is a king size bed and uh I feel like saying You know, I don't know. Yeah. And uh but it was great. So essentially I went home to my you know, my apartment and just went home and saw my folks and then we went out probably to Cantor's for dinner, you know. So I mean it was simpler, it sounds simpler than it was maybe, but it wasn't simple at all and it was it was very meaningful. There's nothing nothing. People like you And I like to do more than think about show business and talk about it and learn with it and from it, but with it. And I'm still doing that. I want to do it forever. If uh, every time it's a great business, every my wife and I have uh, two sons and we may be the only parents in America would like our kids to get into show business (laughs) we my wife is a award-winning writer producer and we're a show business family and and the, the point is there's nothing I like hearing more than a story about how someone got a job or didn't get a job or did the right meeting or blew the meeting and it's wonderful I can still say I was in those offices by the way I I worked for Tom and with Tom he gave me an office there to hang my shingle as a writer Everywhere he went to, around Universal, they were so gracious to me. For him and Jim Brubaker and uh, everyone he had there, I liked him so much. And so I could see that office you were talking about because I know it. <laughs> There's nothing better than thinking and talking about show business. I feel it's that way. I really do. And
0: I just feel privileged to actually be sitting across you talking about it because you've been in those situations
2: all the time. Yeah. I think I've always been one of those. Oh, I know that guy. And that's a fine thing to be. I worked at a lot of Tom's movies, by the way. He was always someone who gave you a great uh, sense of how to be on that set. He was always someone you could walk up to also and say, I got it. I could turn every engine on. And just say, how about this? In fact, I remember one with Jim, and I always liked him so much. He was uh, as the producer there. Jim
0: Brubaker was his, I guess you'd call him his line producer, too, and yeah. a regular producer. And Tom didn't do anything without... Him. and a lot of times directors will have somebody who's a line producer who they who, who he gives a credit to of a regular producer. And I'll just explain real quick. In film, the producer, the capital P producer, is the highest level credit you can get in a movie, and executive producer is the highest level credit you can get in television. But line producer, just for those of you who don't know, it, I always thought it was the most difficult job in show business. It's the guy who's basically responsible for every single line item on this movie. And yeah. when I say line item from the craft service guy serving the ham and Ritz cracker things to the location that you're in in a house in Agora to the the lights that are being used for the shot to the cameras to the cameramen and every single thing. His job is to get it under budget and to manage these people and make them happy throughout so the director doesn't have to worry about anybody being unhappy.
2: You know how good Jim is at that? Many other things as well, but at that, when I was first meeting him, I hadn't met him yet. It was on one of Tom's movies, and I came there the day before the first day at work, and I had, I always liked Universal. I had an office there. It was great. It was like a very big home. And at any rate, I, I had just gone to Costco the day before, And they were selling shirts there for fourteen dollars. This was a Ralph Lauren shirt, and I thought, "Wow, what the heck? It's it's cotton, and it's like it was sort of like you had to buy eight of them in a pack. (laughs) And but they gave you peanut butter. But it was I. So I got this shirt. It was red plaid. I was wearing it. And I'm uh, walking on the set and I'm walking toward base camp there. I haven't met Jim yet. For
0: our audience who don't know this, base camp, which when I first went to a movie set, I had no idea what base camp was. I thought I was in the Marines. Basically, what happens is there's two places on a set that people congregate. There's the set where you're actually shooting, and there's the base camp where they set up all the trailers. They normally find the parking lot or some CVS lot or something where they put all the trailers and everybody, and the vans take you back and forth from your dressing room trailer, as you would say, which varies in size depending on your role and your status in the business, from the size of a tour bus to the size of Ritz Cracker.
2: And... Must have been a uh, hundred feet away, or more, and uh, and so Jim's sitting in a you know movie chair that people know about, and Tom was sitting with him, and uh, he looked up, and uh, Tom uh, pointed to me and just you know said, Cause "We're hundred feet away, hundred fifty feet away," and, um, and here comes Larry, and like that, Brubaker just uh, sh- just looks over and, and shouts. Costco, $14. <laughs> <laughs> and I kept walking toward him, and I, and I laughed. But I remember thinking, this guy may be the greatest producer in the history of show business. <laughs> How do you know everything? And uh, I I always liked him. I, when I met him that, that minute, I just said, get a load of you. You. <laughs> he's very quiet and calm in his own way. But he's had every job on a set, every job in a studio. And he rose. You see his name. You see movies like The Right Stuff and produced by Jim Brubaker. And you say, oh, holy mackerel, that's, uh, he's made a lot of great movies. At any rate, that, uh, I still have that shirt, by the way.
0: <laughs> Let's do a little word association before we go. I'm going to okay. mention a name. Good. And sure. just tell me the first thing that comes to mind about them, something short, quick, maybe inspirational. Christopher uh,
2: Christopher Guest. Is it possible to be more talented than that? I don't think so. this guy is so cool I remember getting that first phone call they were in Texas on uh, on uh, w- one of their movies and he was it was him and it's just saying the nicest things I've heard you'd be pretty good at something like this would you like to come out and uh, join us that was waiting for Guffman I think and uh, at any rate, I was thrilled it's sure great this guy. Is a great storyteller, a great director. His concept, I love what he and Eugene Levy do together in making an outline, making a sense of the story to tell. But boy, this fella, Christopher Guest, I I, I guess I always want to look at him and just say, boy, you're really something, aren't you? (laughs) You are. And his acting skills, good Lord, to put on some of the deep characters and accents he does. I love him. I uh, hope... I hope he does another one, and I hope he calls me on that same house phone again. Larry David. Well, he's wonderful. You know, I, I've known him since uh, the we were all baby comics. In fact, he was an MC at Catch a Rising Star who passed me at Catch a Rising Star. And uh, on the audition night, this is a funny, talented, hardworking, super successful storyteller, performer, writer. Actor, comedian, good lord! I remember <laughs> in the early days in comedy, he in New York, he, he he came over to me one night and he just said, "You know, I think uh, you and I are uh, alike in a lot of ways. I, you don't have a a picture either, a photo either, an eight <laughs> by ten either. I don't uh, don't like that stuff." And I I think I said to him, uh, "Well, you know what? That's." i yeah, love it. The more we're alike, I think the better it is. But in my case, <laughs> that may be just laziness. I mean, <laughs> I haven't gone over and gotten one. I think I will within a year or two. <laughs> Richard Gere. He's so gracious, so talented. You know, that, this guy is a great actor, and it was a treat. He's always has such a kind greeting when, when you run into him. It's a treat to work with him on a, a couple of those well those Gary Marshall movies, and I mean come on he's wonderful, you know even starting with Pretty Woman you know he and Julia Roberts as stars, at any second, you know could have gone over to Gary Marshall and said, oh, who is this guy and why are we going by you know these things or he's he's in, he's improving this and that, but they never wanted to do that they never thought to do that. They they enjoyed it and they knew that it was Gary Marshall doing a a really good different job. Bill Maher. Oh, Bill Maher we've been friends uh, since the early days. It's someone else who's, uh, who's Re-
0: relationships everybody.
2: Yeah, yeah, and but uh, well, that's someone else who works his butt off, and and talking about success, is, is carved out. Look at the look at the mountains he's carved out. So you know what. Sure, we used to uh, hang out more in the New York days, but that's the way it is. He said, he said "You know, come on, why don't we go out for you know dinner more? Or why don't we do this or that?" And I've, i you know, I've said I'd love to, but you know, uh, I, unlike you, I'm married with kids, <laughs> so I can't. We can't fl- fly someplace. <laughs> Gary Shandling, oh boy, he's great, and uh, someone else who is smart and funny, and knows how to look at things and absorb them, knows how to take information in. He's, uh... He takes in so much. He's a great writer with his own stuff, and all of the shows and he wants to make. And you know what? Someone else who has followed the right instructions in his own head and heart, and and used them well. Evie Murphy. Well, it's a great talent, of course. And uh, you know that uh, he, he's such a great guy to get get along with. When James Coburn was in that, uh, that movie, one of the, the Nutty Professor movies, he, Eddie kept coming up. And remember, he's wearing these gigantic fat suits and or, or dresses or whatever the scene is about. And he would say to me, uh, "Can you believe we're just working with James Coburn?" <laughs> and I'd say, uh, "The truth." I'd say, "I know. I feel the same way. It's unbelievable." He was feeling it the same way. That's a that's a love of show business. And by the way, this guy—it's something worth saying about his personality—on uh, those movies with all those characters, like seven characters and huge different, not just costumes, but took you know. F- Two hours, four hours, four hours to get in the, the fat stuff and four hours to get out. It's unbelievable. And to sit in special wide chairs that in between takes just to get off your feet a little. And you know what? He never complained once. Not to anybody. He never said, you know, this is nuts. He just knew what it was going to take. And, uh, and it was Jack Nicholson who uh, won the Academy Award for Best Actor that year, who said in his interviews backstage with all the reporters, he said, this is wonderful, but the best actor this year was Eddie Murphy in Nutty Professor. Finally, Jerry Seinfeld. Well, I love him. He's my dear friend, and uh, I'm his. And this, is a, this is a guy whose gifts are strong, they're huge, and just who doesn't, same thing, doesn't know how to st- to stop and doesn't want to. Look what he's built for crying out loud. It's, it seems obvious, but that's a lot. And that he's built. Whew. That's a, that's also a, a career where you want to go. Whew. And uh, he's smart. He's got good advice. And he's learned many good lessons. He knows how to pass on many good lessons. In fact, when I was on his show, he said to me, you know, by the second day of rehearsals, I... And you're trying everything. You know, as, as an actor on that show, you're do, doing you know, takes and moving your head and doing chimp flips. You're doing anything <laughs> you can. And he said to me on the second or third day, you know what, it's going great, but it's, you don't need to do all that, all that stuff. Just You just say the words and, and be there, and you know what, your stuff will take you right where you want to go. And I said, how do you like that? That sounds exactly right. And it was.
0: Fantastic. Tell me about your biggest disappointment in show business and how you
2: turned it around into something positive. Biggest disappointment in show business that I turned around into something positive. Uh, On The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, I was... uh, in fact, Seinfeld had taken me to uh, a good clothing store in Beverly Hills. He said, "Look, you're on the Tonight Show now, and uh, you should have a better suit than the ones you've been wearing." And I, and he wasn't wrong, you know. And uh, he took me to a place doesn't even have a front. There was no facade. It was uh, <laughs> you just know where to go in between the bushes there, <laughs> and it was it was great. I'd still be embarrassed to tell you what it cost. It was an Armani suit, and where I learned to say, "Where your money is, our money." And
1: <laughs> I, How I, much
2: did the suit cost? I, I'd be, I'd be embarrassed to say. It's not like I today. I don't suppose it's so huge, but it's uh, you know, it's still, it's still a lot. Okay. And uh, I bought two shirts to go with it, and. Uh, this was a black double-breasted Armani suit, and I got two ties to go with it. I still have the ties and the, and the suit. I wore that suit a lot. And uh, so much that uh, my mom said, God bless her, after you know a certain amount, I wore it on every TV show I was on. Every one. And uh, she said, you know what? I know you're wearing that Armani suit because you, you you bought it and you paid for it, but you could get another one, too. <laughs> that it was everyone for four years, five years, every single show, Tonight Show, Letterman, anything else, Award on Jay's show, a bunch of times, I mean, I, I think even my friends started saying, get another suit, it's enough. <laughs> and... uh <laughs> And that was your biggest disappointment? No. (laughs) No, the biggest one was going to, getting that suit, taking it to The Tonight Show the first time, and I had just picked it up from the store in Beverly Hills, and I was there with Tom Stern, who was an agent at the time, and we were always friends, and... I loved getting places early. I love being early. Which
0: is and, very, very important, everybody, it's if you can get there early for everything.
2: Everything. And just to be there and to walk out onto the bare stage, of course, long before the band gets there and long before anyone else is in there, and see a couple of the folks like Ed McMahon would see you just walking out to the spot you're going to be on and just, just pacing it out, looking at where the curtains are, and not in a crazy way, but just enjoying it, loving it. And then seeing, looking at the desk going, how do you like this? And then going around backstage and knowing where everything is backstage, you can go to the refrigerator and get a soda. And, and I, uh, then the show taped in those, I think it was at 515 and, uh, so at about 430, I went back into the dressing room there and, uh, and Tom was there, nice and I said, I think it's time to put on some Tonight Show clothes and my fancy new stuff. And he said, All right. And I, as I said, I'd hung it up and I uh, uh, took it out and the suit was in a, a plastic uh, bag that they, a black bag that they had uh, put it in. And I took it out and there were no pants. Oh the God. first time I'm wearing it on the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, no pants. Oh. And I just lo- looked at it and, I, and my mouth kind of moved a little and Tom said, is something wrong? And I said, No pants. <laughs> And he said, "What?" I said, "There are no pants." And he looked at it, and he, just you know, kind of freaked. What? 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 No pants? There are no pants? What are we going to do? And I said, "Wait a minute." And they had the phone. I used the phone in the dressing room to call the store, and I did. And I got the salesman on the line. And he said, "Wait, let me take a look." And he came back to the phone and said, "You know, you're right. We didn't put the pants in the bag." And you know, you want to crawl through the phone and strangle someone. But I did. Of course, it didn't. I said, what? what he said, don't worry. Uh, we'll send them over right now. They'll be there in plenty of time. Now, I have, you know, Beverly Hills to Burbank <laughs> in the middle of the night. My missile <laughs> is still 20 minutes in rush hour coming up to you at 430. It can, 4:30. Be, can be an hour, an hour and a half. Two hours, three, five, nine hours. It doesn't matter. It's it's not thinkable. And I just said, all right, all right, because I, there's, no, there's no way. Tom ran out of the dressing room to get Jim McCauley. And he ran into, and this was the dressing room at the end, one end of things where there was a, a wall, a concrete wall. And he ran into that and got a lump on his forehead. I mean, he ran in at about 15 miles an hour. <laughs> like, agent running. Just went, oh, i got to get Jim. Went, whammo! And I mean, you heard it. People in South America must have gone, ooh, what was that? And then Jim McCauley came in and Tom was there, a little dizzy from the lump. And it was, was still growing. He really walloped himself. And and Jim said, all right. Uh, he said, you know what? Let me get, uh, oh, Jennifer, I'm sorry. I can't remember her name. Who was the wardrobe woman there at the Tonight Show. And uh, I'll tell her what it is. And they, uh, she brought in... A pair of uh, black pants that could be suit pants that could have gone with the with the Armani jacket. Unfortunately, the pants had last been worn by William Conrad <laughs> or someone <laughs> that size, and they were they were very big. They were like they were they were like very very, very big. Hang on, let me turn this thing off. Hang on. <laughs>
0: You can take Hang it. On. Don't worry well, about it. All right. He-
2: Hello. <laughs> hey, man. Uh, can I call you back? I'm just, in, well, in the middle of something now. All right. Uh, thanks. I'll I'll call you back. Bye. Speaking of uh, friends, let me turn this thing off. That was Mark Schiff calling.
0: At any rate... Mark Schiff, a really great comedian, also wrote for The Letterman Show, didn't he? Yeah.
2: And uh, at any rate,
0: so... Actually, Mark Schiff, speaking of comedians, if I'm not mistaken, when Bill Hicks did his first set on The Letterman Show, uh, uh, which was... uh, edited out of the Letterman show which Letterman later brought his mom on to uh, apologize I believe they used a clip of Mark Schiff doing stand up because he did warm up for the Letterman show then
2: oh, how do you like that I could be wrong though you'll have to ask him got me? I'll ask him when I call him back uh, at any rate so t- t- Jim McCauley comes in the pants are there and they're just they're immense and uh, she said, the wardrobe woman said, don't worry, we'll pinch them in the back to where they fit, and then it'll just come out in the back. But that's a big pinch. I mean, they that's meant There was, a f- you know, two feet of <laughs> pinch material there. And so I, I, I just took them over and said, thank you very much. And I said to Jim, now the show has started, meaning The Tonight Show. Da, 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 da. You know, it's a show, and it's and it's right there. Meaning, like, here's the dressing room <laughs> through those doors. That's the Tonight Show. That's that, your first time that on. That I'm supposed to be on <laughs> with clothes, and so I just said, I just said, I don't, I don't, I don't, <laughs> know, don't know what this do. And uh, Tom said, maybe it'll get here in time with the. Because uh, I said to Jim, this is, this is, this is like. <laughs> comedy pants but not good comedy. <laughs> and he said, "Well, you got you you got to wear something." And he God bless me, he was starting to get a little edgy now also, cuz the show's on.
0: <laughs> you know what's weird about the tonight show and all these shows, they they're they're what's called live to tape everybody. Yeah. So what that means is is that they shoot them to the exact time specifications of what the show will be so that when they get out of it, there's very minimal editing that can be done. It just goes. They have, they have it all timed out. The commercial breaks will be. And, but what I never understood was if something's happening like that, why during a commercial break don't they just take another 15 minutes and have the band play a few numbers and just delay it uh, because the satellite feed doesn't have to come that quickly?
2: But they never do. No. And the answer to that is it's <laughs> never going to happen. And and it shouldn't happen. And you don't want it to happen. You don't want to be the reason it happened. <laughs> so uh, J- Jim just said, maybe the other ones will get here. I thought, That's not going to happen. And uh, so we took the pants off my hand. I walked out in my underwear, which I don't care about anyway. It's just, again, you're wearing your shoes. Seems to be the- a running theme with you. <laughs> That's right. It's not not a coincidence. And you know what? So we walked out down the hallway, and uh, past the makeup room, out to the uh, stage area, the behind behind the stage there, and uh, they out to behind the curtain. So the first guest is on now, and and just you know, uh, and there's a guy behind the curtain who's going to send you out there. He pulls the curtain back, and he's going to send you out there, meaning. You're going out there. <laughs> his job is n- not to listen to what's happening. He's gonna. He puts his, his hand on your shoulder, which is on your back, sort of. And he's, he's used it before. He's good at his job, meaning when your name is announced, he's, he's going to pull that curtain with one hand, and you're going out there. <laughs> now, you may sit down and suck your thumb in the middle of the floor if that's what you want to do but the fault won't be his. So I know this. So I'm standing there and and Jim takes the pants from me and I said, I can't. And Tom says, and then this thing is now. And you're uh, in your box. And I'm in my boxer shorts. (laughs) And you're in your agent and a whole big bump. Yeah. And it's, it's, (coughs) it's like another person that bump now. And so he says, you know what? I'll go outside to the, to the entrance there, to the, near the parking lot and I'll wait so when they get here with the pants I can take the pants and bring them back here and even Jim even the guy behind the curtain just went you know kind of just kind of rolled his eyes because that's not going to happen so Tom does an agent's jog out down the hallway and leaves the studio to go there and I said holy mackerel and then you know it's time for my segment And I'm standing there in my underwear still. And Jim says, Larry, you better put the pants on. And I said, I don't, you know what? Now, meanwhile, you're going to get the introduction you've been waiting for your whole life. The great Johnny Carson, first time a comic has been on the show introduction. (laughs) Almost everyone, I'm sure, has has seen that, you know, that, uh, well, you know, folks, there's there's nothing better in the world than a good young comic. (laughs) And nothing harder to do, whatever it is, and the first time on the show and this and that. And he, so, so Jim says, Larry, put the pants on. And it comes back from the band. Da da da, dum, freedom, you know, after the commercial number they played. And you can hear Johnny uh, tap the card on the, you. Know, All right, well, we have now. And Jim said, Please, put the pants on now. Put the pants on this second. And I said, You know, you're, you're right, I guess. And uh, so I started to put the pants on. It's just, and you. It didn't feel right, and I said, "Oh Lord!" And I uh, and I and I buttoned them up and I I zipped them up. Don't you know? At that second, here comes Tom Stern, (laughs) jogging with an even larger bump on his head now, and holding up pants. And he's he's so crazed he's actually yelling, "I got the pants! I got the pants!" And even a couple of stage people just go shh, and uh, and Johnny Carson says, uh, <laughs> and uh, and this is this is young man's first time on the show, and I and I just looked at Jim and look, looked at Tom, Tom comes running up, and after a, just a beat, I ripped off the big pants. I just un- unzipped and kicked him off, kicked him off the shoes, took Tom's you know pa- the, the pants from Tom and got you know the one leg in. And uh, next weekend he'll be at the Punchline in Atlanta, and uh, and I and I got both legs in, and I start to <laughs> tuck the sh- the the shirt in, and I, I I got the shirt in and buttoned and did that, and Jim gave me the belt, and I just you know got one thing, so please you know please welcome, and I realized there's no time for this, I just tossed him the belt again, <laughs> tossed it back to him, and uh, Larry Miller, and this guy opens the curtain just as I button the one button on the double breasted jacket. Just the one and just and then just looked up and the curtains open and he he was pushing me out there, but he didn't have to. I wanted to go out there. I probably floated out there. And I did it said the set. It was a great set. I was very happy. I got the big okay and thanks and I walked walked off again and just said well, how do you like them apples? <laughs> that's a that's a story in show but business that it didn't go the way it looked like it was going to go. And I took that stuff off. And even Tom, who had some ice on his head now, was <laughs> back in the dressing room and just, there was nothing to say. He said some nice stuff. It was a great, great set. This set was great. Just great set. And he, he was still just vibrating. And uh, then we just stood there for a while and said, whew, And Jim McCauley, pardon me, Jim McCauley came back in and said something awfully nice, too. And I said, well, thanks, man. And then just looked at him and went, I said, you must have seen some nights far crazier than this. And he said, you can't imagine. (laughs) So I took my stuff off, put my day clothes, travel clothes, so to speak, back on. Put everything back in the fancy bag. And and said, "Well, I guess we'll go." And had a great Tonight Show, and then walked back out to the parking lot. Now it's uh, still light out. It was a summery night, so it's about you know whatever it is. Now it's about seven seven fifteen, seven thirty. So it's still sun sunny, and uh, I just said to Tom in the parking lot, and I just said, "Okay, well, see ya." <laughs> But because there's nothing to say there's nothing still to we're both reacting still to it's light out and it's as beautiful a, you know, a day as could be in Los Angeles and it's almost the feeling of did any of that happen but it did so now that's a good memory and that's a story where it goes a little wrong and then it goes very right incredible your proudest moment in show business everything I'm doing well the next job I have, this is a proud moment because the what leads up to it and what we're doing. And I've had some, in the world of jobs, being on sets and being for movies and TV, I've been very lucky and very happy doing some very good jobs. I'm not sure, what proudest moment, I've won a couple of awards, and that's nice, but it's not. Wow, I'm so proud of that. I guess I meant what I said. I'm proud we're together now, but then I'll go home and get ready to pick up one of my kids at school, which is a great moment.
0: Right. Last question. What advice would you give to the young person starting out in a small town somewhere in the world who has a dream of maybe doing something special? In the entertainment business as far as a writer, Mm. executive producer, stand-up comedian, (coughs) actor who might have shared a few moments with his dad on the couch laughing but wondering how is it possible? How can I – what do I need to do to get the kind
2: of career that Larry Miller has? Well, thank you for saying it that way. You're not going to like the sound of this, but it's the best advice you're ever going to hear. Don't be afraid of it. Get in there and start slugging. And when things go wrong, you can get angry. Anger is fine. But don't be afraid of it. Don't ever say, ever, I was wrong to get in. Guess what? You've already been turned the right way. You've already been shown the door to go through. Go through it. Now, if you're looking for the secret of show business or the secret of where the door is, There's no door and there's no secret. What you do is, as an actor, as a comic, as anything you want to be, start hanging out where all the people hang out who do that. And you know what? You'll learn something, and you'll get your first agent, and you won't like him. And so you'll get another one. Or the agent will hire you, and he won't like you. And he'll get another one. Don't be afraid of it. Just keep going. And keep swinging with both hands. And keep smiling... And keep saying, how do you like that? I'm in show business, and I'm never leaving.
0: Larry Miller, this has just been so unbelievable. I've had the best time. You're amazing, amazing, extraordinary man. You know, I've done probably close to 90 or 95 of these things. I don't ever remember laughing that hard. I don't ever remember crying that hard after I laughed or feeling the way I do after this podcast, and I'm very, very grateful. Thank you.
2: You're welcome, and what a, as you say, what a proud moment to hear something like that, so thank you.
0: You've been listening to me, Barry Katz, and another episode of Industry Standard, and if you like the show, please tell all your friends, and if you don't like the show, tell all your friends.
1: They say it's the glory I'll screaming days. put you on shoulders, walk you to fame. you get all the money, drive that fancy car. All the people love you, cause you're going for. Life is for the dreamer. They have all the gate. It's never quite over. So it all feels the same. You pick your own poison and dig your own grave down in the valley. A fortune. <laughs>